Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Onelenzinzi and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, UN Security Council to impose targeted sanctions in South Sudan, and Lesotho Constitutional Court dismisses a case against King Litsia III. In economics, Nigeria's main cities face acute petrol shortages, and in sports news, South Africa ready to play Mexico in the Cyprus Women's Cup. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Lusita's Independent Electoral Commission will announce the final results of the weekend election today. The IEC is finalizing the allocation of the remaining 40 seats that are proportional to the total national vote. Lusita's Prime Minister Tom Tabane's All-Basutu Convention has won 40 of the 80 constituencies, but the opposition Democratic Congress has the highest number of voters in the country. Ntakwana Gatane reports. It is called the mixed member proportional system. In a national assembly of 120 seats, 80 are won up front by beating opponents in constituencies and they have now been announced. The other 40 are allocated with a formula to compensate the parties with many voters nationally. The seats are then added together to get a final number. It is that number that the IEC will announce this morning. Analysts are already making their calculations and some parties are celebrating but it is not over until the IEC confirms it. The United Nations Security Council has adopted a resolution to impose sanctions on the two conflicting sides in South Sudan. This as a deadline for reaching a peace agreement draws near. The council unanimously voted in favor of imposing global travel bans and assets freeze against individuals loyal to rebel leader Rehika Machar and the country's president Silva Kerr. Under the U.S. drafted resolution, a sanctions committee tasked with submitting a list of the individuals to the fifth member UN body will be set up. The resolution was passed after the Juba government and rebels resumed their final round of peace talks in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa yesterday. The negotiations are mediated by regional states and the two Sudanese sides have until tomorrow to reach an inclusive deal to stop 14 months of violence in the African state. 
Meanwhile, the Sudanese government has begun to register South Sudanese living in the country and issuing them with ID cards. That, give them, that gives them the right to work and access to basic services. More than 54,000 South Sudanese have been registered and some 37,000 identity cards produced since the program began at the start of February. An estimated half a million South Sudanese are living in Sudan. This includes the 120,000 who have fled there since South Sudan's conflict erupted in December 2013. Fighting in northern Nigeria has brought thousands of people flooding into Cameroon. The UN Refugee Agency says the latest influx happened at the weekend and follows repeated clashes involving insurgents and Nigerian troops in the north of the country. UNHCR plans to respond by moving displaced people away from several volatile border zones just south of Lake Chad. Cameroonian authorities say this is just the latest influx of refugees from Nigeria caused by the fighting. UNHCR's Adrian Edwards. The authorities are telling us that more refugees continue to cross into these volatile areas which lie just to the south of Lake Chad and have come under repeated attacks by Nigerian insurgents in recent weeks. And finally, Tanzania's President Jakaya Kikweta has promised to end a wave of killings of albinos, saying the witchcraft-related murders were shaming his East African nation. Campaigners say more than 70 albinos have been killed in the past few years, mainly in the north of the country. Tanzanian police on Monday banned a planned demonstration by the Tanzania Albinism Society in the country's commercial capital, Dar es Salaam, citing security reasons. Kukweta has agreed to meet albino leaders next week to discuss possible solutions to the killings. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you. And it is exactly 8.06 Central African time and this Wednesday, March the 4th, the 63rd day of 2015 with 302 days left in the year. Our top story, the UN Security Council this week decided to set up a system to impose sanctions on individuals who are regarded as spoilers of the efforts to bring peace to South Sudan. The 15-member council unanimously adopted a resolution to impose targeted sanctions and an arms embargo to support the peace process in the country. The new African nation has been embroiled in conflict, which broke out in December 2013 between government and rebel forces. UN Radio's Derek Mbata reports. Although peace agreements have been signed by President Salva Kiir and opposition leader Riek Machar, the conflict has continued in South Sudan. About two million people have been displaced from their homes since the fighting broke out in December 2013. Approximately 100,000 of the displaced people have sought refuge at the bases of the UN mission in the country, UNMIS. The Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGAD, a grouping of East African countries, is mediating the talks in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa, to end the conflict. Ambassador Samantha Power of the United States, which sponsored the Security Council resolution, 
said while papers have been signed and promises made, the situation has worsened for the people of South Sudan. The aspirations of the South Sudanese people have time and again been thwarted. Instead of pursuing the well-being of their people, a variety of individuals have chosen to place their own narrow political interests first, rather than making the compromises necessary to get to peace. Ambassador Power said the Security Council resolution supports ICAD's mediation efforts by laying the framework for targeted sanctions. Under the terms of this resolution, the parties must meet EGAD's deadlines for the resolution of all outstanding issues of this conflict and to begin the process of establishing a transitional government of national unity. The consequences for not doing so could include the designation of senior individuals for asset freezes and travel bans or the imposition of an arms embargo. For his part, Ambassador Francis Deng of South Sudan questioned the effectiveness of sanctions to promote the peace process in his country. If, as is often said, the goal is not to target top leaders, but some middle-level individuals, more or less in a symbolic way, who may not be playing a pivotal role in the peace process, such a punishment may be an exercise in futility. On the other hand, punishing persons who are playing leading roles at this crucial juncture in the peace process could be counterproductive against the cause of peace. Ambassador Deng said his government believes that the international community can play a positive role by engaging both parties constructively to expedite concluding an agreement. Derek Mbata, United Nations. President Salva Kiir of South Sudan has arrived in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia ahead of the March 5th deadline set for him to reach a comprehensive agreement with rebel leader Riek Macha. Koleta Wanjohi has more. President Salva Kiir of South Sudan arrived in Addis Ababa on March 2nd, much later than 19th February when he was expected. Together with rebel leader Riek Mashar, they failed to lead from the beginning negotiations into a comprehensive agreement of transitional government for South Sudan by March 5th, the deadline set by Intergovernmental Authority for Development that is brokering the South Sudan peace talks. The two principals have received from their negotiating teams information that they have been deliberating on since 19th February. They are expected to make strong decisions on the outstanding issues, especially on politics and security. The president's late arrival is already raising speculation. Emmanuel Paul, a member of South Sudan civil society, says that the arrival of President Kir is a cause to raise hope for a conclusive peace deal between the warring parties. It's a rifleless, but we don't know what is, whatever is in briefcase is coming with. But we believe it's a man enough to resolve this issue with his colleague. Negotiations since 19th February between thematic groups from the warring sides have reached a deadlock on three issues. The structure of leadership, that means determining who will be the first vice president and the powers of the transitional government. There is also an issue of whether the transitional government should have two armies as per the demand of rebels or maintain one. And also the issue of how justice and accountability will be given to the people of South Sudan. Gideon Mabor is an independent policy analyst. He explains that the delay of the two principles to be part of the negotiation from 19th February will have some adverse effect on the peace process. The amount of work that the technical committee, that the thematic working group has for what the principle is an indication of a failure because 
principles are non-negotiated. They are supposed to bless the political uh, matters that are of significant importance. But if you can move the whole negotiation process to the principle, that is a clear indication of the failure. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm not expecting any unexplored prospect uh, uh, to be reached in this uh, final session, specifically uh, with regard to the security arrangement. Uh, security arrangement is the lifeline of the peace process, and if there is no proper understanding of the security arrangement between the government and the opposition, I don't think there will be an agreement. Analysts say that the negotiation that has been going on has turned out to be a one-party affair. This is because other political parties in South Sudan have not been allowed to be in Addis Ababa to attend. In addition, members of civil society have been granted just an observer status and only for particular fora, questioning the validity of the inclusivity idea that the mediation has been pushing for. The Intergovernmental Authority for Development, IGAD, that is brokering the South Sudan peace talks, has declared this phase of negotiations as the last one to reaching a comprehensive agreement of a transitional government for South Sudan. President Salva Kiir and rebel leader Riek Machar signed an agreement on February 1st that agreed that they would reach a comprehensive framework for the transitional government by March 5th. Then, by April 1st, a pre-transitional period would take over, leading to a final operational government by June 9th. For now, it is time that we'll tell if all this will happen as per the schedule. Koleto Njoi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. The IEC in Lesotho's National Assembly election has announced the final results. Pagadita Musisiri's Democratic Congress has won the most votes, scoring over 218,000, and Prime Minister Tom Tabane's Albasuta Convention got 215,000. However, ABC got a total of 40 constituencies out of 80, which forms the parliament, while DC won 37. Conelo Likafula has more from Maseru. Mahetan Yamina, ADC, 33 votes. Mute Jinping Joan, MFP, 69 votes. Mutsumi Lewile Clement, ABC, 1,155 votes. That is Lesotho's IEC chairperson, Mohapela Lehosa, as he announced the names of the candidates and the number of votes scored. Lehosa says elections were free and fair and that the mountain kingdom is heading for yet another coalition government as there has been no outright winner. One thing that I wanted to point out here at this stage is that uh, Basotho have indicated that they want peace and the sort of peace that they wanted was to be maintained by the parties working together. So they first of all opted that there be a coalition but the leadership was not too keen on that. There has been mixed reactions from Basotho in the streets of the capital Maseru, especially when it comes to a coalition government which seems to be coming their way. My spirit is down because of, because of these elections, because I don't see any progress for our country. So I, I heard so many people talking about the fightings and so I, I don't see anything. So when it comes to coalition again, it means maybe two years or one year to come, 
will go to elections again. So we are going to, we are not going anywhere with this thing. On coalition, I think we need to grow as well on that, on that area. We need to, as Basu, to accept coalition. It's part of our government from now onwards. So we have to know how do we uh, work around the coalition type of government. It's 8.16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Lesotho Constitutional Court has dismissed the case in which the Attorney General was suing King Litsia III and Prime Minister Tom Tabane for appointing the President of the Court of Appeal, Dr. Kananelo Musito. Attorney General Tsukole Machete argued that Tabane advised the King without consulting his cabinet. This was therefore unconstitutional, but the Constitutional Court disagrees with him. Tabane vowed to protect the integrity of the royal family, and he has won, but that has not happened helped him win the royal village of Matsieng. Ntakwanangatane reports from the capital, Maseru. When Tabane advised the king to appoint Dr. Kananelo Musito as the president of the Court of Appeal, judges of the appeal court resigned. Coalition partner Lesotho Congress for Democracy, LCD, and the Opposition Democratic Congress said this violated the electoral pledge to refrain from appointing and dismissing senior government officials. The attorney general said it was unconstitutional because Tabane did not consult his cabinet and so he sued. Court lawyers for the king and the prime minister said the attorney general had no jurisdiction to challenge the appointment and the constitutional court agrees. Attorney General Tsukulo Machete. Whether or not the attorney general can act against the government to protect the constitution, uh, that was my standpoint, that the government itself being not above the constitution uh, in terms of the relevant sections of the constitution uh, it would appear the attorney general is the watchdog to protect uh, the constitution and other laws of course the court disagrees with me on that and uh, i'm fine i haven't studied the reasoning you see in this field, there is what is called the reasoning. I am still yet to study the reasoning, but that was the issue. Prime Minister Tom Tabane vowed to protect the integrity of the king in this case, and now his Obasutu convention has won 40 of the 80 constituencies in Lesotho, but it lost the royal village of Matsieng. People of Matsieng say their choice was not swayed by sentiments on the king's case. <laughs> She says they were shocked when the king was taken to court. She says Basutu believe in their king and their chiefs. She says chiefs resolve everyday problems. She says the reason many people elected DC is because they did not get service delivery in Matsieng. He says there are many people in Matsieng who are unemployed. 
The conundrum now is, if the Attorney General wants to take the matter further to the appeal court, will Mosito give it a fair hearing? Attorney General Tsukulo Machete explains. Oh no, he's a professional. He knows if a matter like this comes before him, what, what, what is the best thing to do? So he's a professional. That, that will be taken care of, definitely. Observers say Basutu are known to be a peace-loving people and this was demonstrated during the elections. But the king's case raised increased tensions. However, this did not sway the vote in Matsien constituency. What remains to be seen is if the new government will accept Musito's appointment or if the Attorney General will indeed take the matter further. I'm Takwanangatan in Maseru, Lesotho. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Going back in time to today in 1972, Soviet Union signs an agreement with Libya to jointly develop and refine Libyan oil, a pact seen as a pressure tactic against Western oil companies. And that was today in history in the year 1972. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Former Egyptian Vice President Mohamed al-Baradei says a decision by an Egyptian court to declare the Palestinian movement Hamas a terrorist organization is polarizing. Al-Baradei says the decision would not help the Palestinian cause and urge for reconciliation, adding that those in the occupied territories are undergoing a horrible time. The Egyptian court's decision follows the ban on the Isa Din al-Qassam brigades, an armed wing of Hamas, in January this year. Sarah Kimani has more. For years, Egypt has been the main mediator between Israel and Hamas. It has helped reach ceasefire agreements, most recently a truce in August last year that stopped the war in Gaza. Gaza is ruled by Hamas. Hamas called Saturday's ruling as shocking. Dr. El-Baradai says it is polarizing and not useful at this time. I, I look at that decision with, with sorrow. Politically, I mean, I think this is not the way we need to go. I'm not sure this is, you know, this is going to help the Palestinian cause. I mean, I, I think what we need right now is, again, is not more polarization among the Palestinians, but more reconciliation between Hamas, between the, you know, the Palestinian Authority. I mean, they are going through the most difficult time. The Israeli policy in the you know, occupied territory is a horrible policy right now. On the Egyptian revolution that ousted Hosni Barak, Baradai says the dream of that revolution is not lost. If you have seen any you know, uh, uprising, revolution, if you like, it takes time. It is never a linear, linear way. But I have no, I have no doubt that eventually, you know, that their dream, of a better future 
based on freedom, social dignity, social justice will succeed. The Nobel Peace Laureate says a global conference to address issues affecting the Middle East region is necessary. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. Zambia police have searched the residence of opposition party leader Hakainde Hichelema and his party officers following a directive from President Edgar Lungu to investigate and interrogate the opposition leader over his recent media statement that he receives state security intelligence briefs meant for the head of the state. But the state police search has so far drawn a blank. Arthur Skopo reports from Lusaka. Police in Zambia on Tuesday morning conducted searches at Opposition United Party for National Development, UPND leader Hagainde Hijilema's residence and party office. This follows a directive from Republican President Edgar Lungu to investigate and interrogate opposition leader over his recent media statement that he receives state security intelligence briefs meant for the head of state even before the head of state does so. State police in riot gear and heavily armed reached the premises of Mr. Haka in the Hijilema and his offices in the early hours of Tuesday and conducted searches at his two residential areas and his party office. Mr. Hijilema described the act as unfortunate and uncalled for in a democratic dispensation. I really think that um, the issue here is that um, President Lungu is taking a, a, a very, very brutal stance towards citizens. Um, the issue of uh, what happened there is recorded. Many of you journalists were there. The headlines that are in certain newspapers or a certain newspaper uh, don't correspond to what is on the, on the audio. There's no question about that. Uh, I think many of you were there. It was only picked by one media. In that manner, it was angled. So I think the issue here is that the president has made it very clear Anyone who does not agree with him must leave this country. I don't know where he expects, uh, in this case, out of 14 million Zambians, I can assure him that 10 million don't agree with him. Police spokesperson Charity Mganga Chanda said in an interview that they have instituted investigations into the matter and hence the search at the leading opposition leader's house. Why we were basically conducting these searches is because we instituted investigations uh, into the matter in which um, UPND leader uh, Mr. Hichilema was quoted in one of the newspapers as having stated that he has been receiving uh, intelligence information meant for the Republican president. What we would want to state is that uh, under the State Security Act, uh, Chapter 111 of the Laws of Zambia, it's an offense for any person to receive any information, article, note, or any document knowing or having reasonable grounds to believe that such information was given out in contravention of the provisions of the Act. Also an offense for any person to communicate any classified information to people other than to whom he is authorized to communicate such information. The police have so far found nothing or no document linking to the statement made by the opposition leader. Reporting for Channel Africa in Lusaka, Zambia, I'm Arthur Skopo. The African Center for Migration and Society at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa, has blamed the recent spate of what they call xenophobic attacks in the country 
on the government's denialism. Researcher Jean-Pierre Misago, Misago highlighted this at a debate on the latest wave of xenophobia at the university last night. The debate was aimed at unpacking the issues as well as seeking to find long-term solutions to the continuing rise of attacks towards foreign nationals in the country. Session Naidu reports. With the recent spate in attacks on foreign nationals in the country, the African Centre for Migration and Society at WITS has blamed government for them attributing the violence solely on crime, ruling out xenophobia. In May 2008, thousands of migrants were displaced, leaving 62 people dead, 21 of which were South African citizens, amid mass looting and destruction of foreign-owned homes, property and businesses across the country. While the scale of the spate of violence has not yet been repeated, attacks on foreign nationals have continued anyway. The violence usually comes in the form of high-profile mob attacks, like those we've witnessed in Sibokeng, Dipslut and most recently in Soweto. Researcher Jean-Pierre Misago. We saw government forming a number of task, t- task teams in different departments, parliament, and, and in other government institutions. But while we have some in the government who expressed genuinely concern about the gravity of the situation, the main official line has been denialism. Government has denied many times that xenophobia is not a big issue in the country. Foreigners have nothing to fear in South Africa, but we all know that's not necessarily the case. Consulate General of Nigeria, Uche Ajulu Okeke, who was the keynote speaker at the debate, says the increase in xenophobia is only leading South Africa backwards. What we in the African continent are saying is that having undergone the trauma of human and material plunder under slavery and colonialism, Africa has had enough exclusion and intolerance and should now focus on the fundamental task of bringing peace, prosperity and development to its myriad peoples. As the second leading economy in the continent, the increasing emergence of xenophobia as social policy and practice in the face of presumed state acquaintance will only lead South Africa backwards and demotivate its continental integration and development. Ajulu Okeke says the only way to move forward and rid of xenophobia is to properly educate the people. The way forward is to embark on sustained massive education, sustained, not occasional educational campaigns, enlightenment and awareness programs and campaigns, and state policy at all levels. Sustained education will imbue tolerance and usher in the level of exposure and awareness needed to launch South Africa into the vibrant economy that it should be. Sustained education at all levels will contribute to the building and strengthening of civil society and usher in social movements which will in turn enhance tolerance, integrative nation building, socio-economic cohesion and prosperity. Regional representative for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Clementine Nkweta Salami, has echoed Ajulu Okeke's sentiments, saying xenophobia more commonly stems from ignorance. Uh, xenophobia, as I said, plays out and has a direct impact on refugees and others of concern to UNHCR. Uh, I feel and I, I, I strongly believe that xenophobia stems to a certain degree from ignorance. Many people do not know why these people are here, 
Many people do not know what the government has engaged itself. In other words, it has signed up to the conventions and agreed as a member of the community of nations to provide them with protection and assistance. I think there is a need for us to better disseminate uh, the fact that these people were victims. That's why they are here. And through xenophobia, they once again become victims. Regional representative for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Clementine Nkweta Salami, ending that report by Session Naidu in Johannesburg. It's 8.30, Central African time, and Anne Musa's up next with the headlines. Good morning, Lesotho Independent Electoral Commission to announce the final results of the weekend election today. United Nations Security Council adopts a resolution to impose sanctions on the two conflicting sides and South Sudan. And the leaders of the West African countries worst hit by Ebola call for more aid to eradicate the disease and rebuild their economies. Those are the stories making headlines. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya. You can catch me on at Habida on Twitter. And on Facebook, you can reach me on Habida's World. For my website, you can find more about me on Habida'sWorld.com. And you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I love you. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta has set fire to 15 tons of elephant tusks to discourage poaching to mark World Wildlife Day. Kenyatta says 25 years after the historic banning of the ivory trade, new demand from emerging markets is threatening Africa's elephants and rhinos. Sarah Kimani has more. On Tuesday, Nairobi, up in flames, went a three-meter-high, 15-ton stockpile. This is just a fraction of the country's stockpile, estimated at 100 tons. President Kenyatta in an address just before torching the stockpile. As part of Kenya's continued policy to put ivory beyond economic use and consistent with international norms regarding disposal of seized contraband, today I will burn 15 tons of ivory at this Nairobi National Park in order to underline our determination to eradicate poaching my government shall burn the rest of the stockpile that we have within this year last year the East African nation lost 164 elephants to poachers Africa according to a United Nations report loses between 20,000 to 25,000 elephants per year out of a population of at least 650,000 the UN Convention on Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Flora and Fauna, CITES, estimates that approximately 94% of rhino poaching takes place in South Africa. South Africa has the largest remaining populations. The trade in natural resources is, according to experts, depriving economies billions of dollars in revenue. Mitt Vilke is a representative of the United Nations Environment Programme. Wildlife crime has escalated rapidly and globally in recent years and now affects not just the charismatic elephants and rhinos about which we hear the most, but a very wide range of terrestrial 
and aquatic animals, trees and other plants and their products across all continents. A recent report prepared by UNIP and Interpol titled The Environmental Crime Crisis estimated that the value of all transnational organized environmental crime might reach as high as 213 billion US dollars a year. That's twice the combined GDP of Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda, as well as the direct threat to wildlife populations and their habitats, poaching of animals and illegal harvesting of wood, and the corruption that fuels these activities are helping to finance criminal groups if this rampant poaching is allowed to continue at the same high level. There will be no elephants left in Africa by the time we reach the middle of the century, with the possibility that this could happen as early as 2030. President Kenyatta says no country should be left behind in the fight against wildlife crime. Concerted local and international efforts are therefore required to disrupt and destroy the illegal systems and illicit economy which are sustained by ivory and trophies from endangered wildlife species. In Africa, the World Wildlife Day also doubles up as Wangari Maathai Day, set aside to honor the late Nobel laureate and environmentalist legacy. Wangari Maathai is Professor Maathai's daughter. She deeply believed that our survival was inextricably linked to and dependent on the survival of our natural environment. This is the third time that Kenya has burned its stockpile. The previous two presidents touched a combined 17 tons of ivory in a bid to send a global message to ban trade in ivory. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. It's 8.37 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now over two days, some 100 delegates from postal operators, regulatory authorities and others involved in the remittance market from across Africa will focus on addressing the challenges for improving the provision of remittance and financial services in rural Africa. Each year, more than 60 billion US dollars in remittances is sent to and within Africa, but often at great expense. To talk more about this, we're now joined on the line by Dr. Pedro de Vasconcelos, Manager of the Financing Facility for Remittances at the International Fund for Agricultural Development. Good morning, Pedro, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, good morning. Hello from Johannesburg. <laughs> now, can you briefly highlight the objective of this conference? As you, as you mentioned very well, we're, we're talking about 30 million people sending $63 billion back to the, the continent, the African continent, every year. And the figures are rising. They're being rising steadily, 10% a year, uh, even though we went through a financial crisis. So... This is, this is a global phenomenon, and for Africa, extremely important. As millions of people, we expect this, uh, a single person sending to at least uh, five dependents. So it is of great importance, and this is what this conference is, uh, is all about, to, to specifically look at the issue of, of the impact of remittances, but also find ways to leverage, to maximize the impact of these flows. One of the basic or greatest issues is that these remittances, half of them, uh, more or less, go to rural areas 
where they have the biggest impact. The problem, and as you mentioned it very well, is the cost. The cost to send these remittances, $200 at a time, is extremely expensive. It's 15% on average. Sometimes it can reach actually even 20. So you do the math. Somebody sending $200 or from $100 to $200 a month to their families and having to pay one-fifth of that just in fees. How can you reduce the cost of that? How can you make it easier for families to receive? And after that, how can you make sure that these have the biggest impact if you can link it with financial services? This is what this conference is all about. Now, post offices often uh, are well-placed in rural areas, but uh, they lack the business model, technology, and expertise to process real-time payment. Will this conference address issues such as these? Absolutely. This is the whole point. The, the, the idea of linking remittances with postal networks or microfinance institutions has been there for a long time. The issues that we're facing is exactly the ones that you've mentioned. And if you want to tap up this market, you need to address them. Some countries, are, we believe, are, are really on, the, on good tracks in, in terms of getting there. And this is what this... Uh, this conference and several programs around it are trying to do to address the technological barriers, to address the capacity of postal networks in, in rural areas in, of some countries as well. If this could be done uh, in uh, in key countries, that could say, that could set a, a, as a new um, let's say example for others in order to reinvent themselves. As you know, the postal networks in some countries are are in a very difficult time. So. The idea, uh, or the idea, the, the goals of this of this conference is to reassemble all the experiences that exist so far, to idea, understand the, the barriers and the challenges ahead, and ways of, of addressing them in order to include them in this in this market and have an impact on cost and access to financial services. Now, let's touch on the issue of uh, Somalia, for instance, where. Um you know, sending money uh, through or of remittances, uh, banks have sort of have sort of withdrawn, ended the remittance services um, because of regulations that hold banks responsible if uh, there's transferred transfers made to terrorist groups like Al Shabaab. What can you say about that and uh, the impact on of that on on the rest of the continent? Absolutely. This is one that is high on the agendas of the G20, for instance, uh, with whom we're working actively to, to try to understand and, and get to a middle ground of uh, one thing is to, to have adequate regulations to address terrorism financing and money laundering. The other is the million of depending families on these transfers and this money transfer companies that have their accounts closed because of these regulations uh, create a tremendous impact on uh, on on this social uh, aspect of sending remittances to their loved ones. So right now the discussions are in trying to find uh, we call it the sweet spot but the 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 address regulations in a in a, in a manner that will not affect the this this remittances uh, as much uh, regulation absolutely is is necessary. However, uh, migrants and their families have two choices: either send it informally or formally. When uh, when the formal option is not is not uh, available, 
we believe that they will just go informally, so the problem will still be present. So a lot of work with regulators, with practitioners is is indeed needed to make sure that we don't create a bigger or a bigger problem is not created. Now, finally, first of its kind, what are you hoping briefly to come out of this conference? First of all is awareness, awareness particularly for postal networks that they can make a difference. If they decide this can not only revive their business, but can be part of their future. And in, if we succeed on that, this can affect millions of families in rural areas that will not just receive cash, but will be able with that cash to be linked with financial services. And by that, I'm meaning simple services as savings, credit, insurance, access to mortgages, for instance. These are all the services that can be linked with this predominant part of the population that receive remittances, but also to benefit the communities around them. So this is really what we want to, to, to bring forward at this conference, is the conscientization from postal networks on the opportunities that they have at hand. Pedro, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. That was Pedro de Vasconcelos, manager of the financing facility for remittances at the International Fund for Agricultural Development. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Onelin Zinzi. Nigeria's main cities are facing acute gasoline shortages. This is importers feel the pinch of plummeting local currency, tighter credit lines and unpaid government subsidies. Nigeria exports around 2 million barrels of crude oil per day, but a neglected refining system means it is almost wholly reliant on imports for the 40 million litres per day of gasoline it consumes. Nigeria's state oil company tried to reduce panic buying on Friday by announcing additional supplies but to little avail. In South Africa, the price of petrol has gone up by 96 South African cents a litre, while diesel is up by 76, 74 cents a litre, and paraffin will cost 73 cents a litre more. The price went up at midnight last night. The main reason for the sharp increase is the average increase in the price of crude oil as well as the rent dollar exchange rate. This is the first fuel price increase since oil price hit record lows recently. Most economists have warned consumers to tighten their belts as the increase is likely to push up prices. Africa's largest telecoms provider, MTN Group, has posted an expected 8.7% rise in full-year earnings after a revenue boost from its key Nigerian market. MTN has, however, warned of possible headwinds due to uncertainty, uncertainty wrought by oil prices. It says diluted headline earnings per share has risen to 1,527 South African cents in the year to end. 
December from a restated 1,404 cents a year ago. MTN had guided that headline earnings per share. The main measure of profitability in South Africa would come in 5 to 15% higher. Botswana's economy is Botswana's economy is forecast to grow by 4.9% this year, a growth lower than the revised estimate of 5.2% last year. Botswana Central Bank's governor Lina Muhoho notes that non-mining output growth in Botswana is expected to be above trend in the medium term. Botswana, which is also which also imports power from South Africa's power utility ESCOM, faces power supply situations against the backdrop of the non-completion of the Morobile B power station. Equally, the mining rich country also faces a water crisis as the Khabarone Dam is less than 4% full. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta has burnt 15 tons of elephant tusks to discourage poaching. This to mark World Wildlife Day commemorated yesterday. Kenyatta says 25 years after the historic banning of the ivory trade, new demands from emerging markets is threatening Africa's elephants and rhinos. Sarah Kimani has more. Last year, the East African nation lost 164 elephants to poachers. Africa, according to a United Nations report, loses between 20,000 to 25,000 elephants per year out of a population of at least 650,000. The UN Convention on Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Flora and Fauna, CITES, estimates that approximately 94% of rhino poaching takes place in South Africa. South Africa has the largest remaining populations. The trade in natural resources is, according to experts, depriving economies billions of dollars in revenue. Looking at your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 11.75 South African rands at 9.58 Botswana Pulas and at 66.91 Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.65 to the British pound and at 0.89 to the euro. Looking at your commodities, gold is trading at $1,211 and platinum at $1,187 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $61.02 a barrel. Channel Africa News. Thank you, Onele. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans, and starting off with football news. South Africa's senior women's team take on Mexico in their opening match of the Cyprus Women's Cup later this afternoon. Banyana Banyana will be looking to use this tournament to get ready for the upcoming Olympic qualifiers as well as the All-Africa Games qualifiers later this year. Midfielder Amanda Lamini says their opponents cannot be taken lightly. Well, we know that they are quite um, short in stature. They are almost uh, our our size, our physique. Um, but we know that they're very aggressive people that like to uh, dominate immediately, like to assert themselves and, and take control of the game. They are quite quick. They also like to play the ball. Um, they are all ball controllers and very comfortable on the ball. And 
I think with the setup and the technical stuff that we have, they've always provided us with videos that we can watch and see how we can we, we can plan. We're not necessarily looking at how they play, but it's just to kind of um, improve our game so that we can adapt um, in whichever challenge they throw um, to us. Meanwhile, the South Africa's national under-17 football team coach Mulefenteke says he's proud of his team Amajimbos, even though they fell short of winning the African under-17 championships. Amajimbos lost 2-0 to Mali in the final in Nijer in on Sunday night. Amajimbos touched down at OR Tambo International Airport to a warm welcome on Tuesday afternoon. And as a result of their efforts in Nijer, they will be competing at the under-17 FIFA World Cup in Chile later this year. Coach Nteke is a proud I think um, I need to also to thank uh, um, the boys uh, for the, we were saying to them for the insult and the swearing and the pressure that they had to overcome in playing for this particular team because we normally, we used to say to them, unfortunately we have to fast track your development from boys to men. Because uh, in this uh, competition, when we started, we did not lose any match. And every match we played was a cup final. So they had to, to withstand all those challenges. And I think they have done very well. And uh, from our side, we want to say to them, thanks for making us uh, the coaches we are today. It's because of your patience, because of your talent, and because of the support and the respect you gave to us. Thank you very much, boys. On to cricket news, Zimbabwe captain Alton Chigumbura has been ruled out of Saturday's make-or-break World Cup clash against Ireland with a thigh injury. The 28-year-old all-rounder was hurt in Sunday's 20-run loss to Pakistan in Brisbane when he tripped and fell while chasing a ball in the Gaba outfield. An MRI scan showed that Chigumbura suffered a third-grade tear of his quad triceps muscles, a large muscle group in the front of the thigh. Zimbabwe have just two points in four Pool B games after a win over the United Arab Emirates and three defeats to South Africa, the West Indies, as well as Pakistan. After Saturday's game, they will complete their pool fixture fixtures against the defending champions India in Auckland on the 14th of March. Not to boxing you, South African National Boxing Organization President Andy Lemofu says they are excited to have selected a preliminary squad of 26 boxers for the 2016 Rio Olympic Games. Mofu says the boxers will undergo a rigorous training in the middle of March at the South Africa's Eastern Cape Academy of Sport. Mofu says the team will also take part in the Zone 4 Games in April and later attend a training camp in Kazakhstan. Sanabo, President Andy Mofu sheds more light on the development. We are now earmarking or we selected rather a team that will take us through now to the 2016 Olympics. Uh, how they actually the, the trials went is that uh, you will remember that last year we had boxers that represented us in the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow and couldn't participate in the national championship. So what we did was we looked at all the medalists from last year, gold, silver, and the two bronze, and then we, we gave them an opportunity to uh, now uh, box against the national, uh, national uh, team and uh, on top of that, we, we requested each province to give us uh, three, uh, three wild men cards and two wild cards for females.
Well, those are your sports news at the sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. UN Security Council to impose targeted sanctions in South Sudan. And Lesotho Constitutional Court dismisses a case against King Lutia III. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuto Ramagaza and Elizabeth Lidicha, technical producer Sviso Mashejo and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Cesaria Evora with a track titled Sangu di Verona. <laughs>